Dialoguing on South Asia, we explore the lives of its people, hear their stories and the histories of the land, discover its beauty, and encounter its conflicts, complexities, and harmonies in a search for liberty, peace, and prosperity. Interacting with leaders, activists, academics, and common folk from the South Asian sphere about their work and their passions, their dreams and their life journeys, their immigrant experiences, advocacy efforts, religion, politics, and so much more with this, your host, journalist and author Peter Friedrich. Hand in hand, we meet and stand with South Asia. This is DOSA. Welcome to the show, Mr. Roger Rajagopal, and good morning to you. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, thank you for coming, and I'm looking forward to some dialogue with you, seeing where the conversation unfolds. And uh, I hope uh, it's, what, about 11 a.m. where you're at right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's 11.03, yeah. 11.03. I'm, I'm here. It's uh, about 2 p.m. where I'm at. And I'm actually uh, deep into probably my, my second or my third cup of coffee. I don't know about you. Are you a coffee guy or a chai guy? Well, I'm al- I've already finished with my third cup of coffee. <laughs> but okay. with, uh, with oat milk. With I, very little, I tend very to be... Small. Tend to be a little bit of a chai and a coffee guy. I start the morning with chai, and then, uh, but my morning doesn't actually really get going until I get onto the coffee. So, how are you? How are you doing after your ten-day fast, and have you recovered fully back to the way you are? You were. I am doing well. Thanks for asking. Although um, I have to offer a slight correction: it was nine days, not ten days. Maybe okay. next time I'll go ten. Um, I'm I'm doing all right. Um, I'm starting to feel back to my normal self. Still working on getting the pounds packed back on. Um, getting back up to speed with full eating. Took me a while to get back into the routine. Um, and um, some of my loved ones commented to me that uh, they heard that for skinny guys, it's actually easier not to eat than it is to eat. Uh, so now the real struggle, the real battle ahead, is to actually. Uh, Put those put those meals in front of me, and then get that energy in me, so I can put myself to work. Right. So, what's your deal, Raju? Um, you uh, you uh, live in California, um, but you're not originally from California, as I understand. And uh, you you're a co-founder of this organization called Hindus for Human Rights, uh, but that's that's a more recent endeavor of yours. Um, you've done a lot of things before that. What's your deal, Raju? Yeah, um, yeah, I've been involved in uh, human rights issues uh, and rural development issues in India for the last thirty years. Uh, and uh, right at the beginning of that career, I was personally exposed to uh, what happened in Gujarat under Chief Minister Modi's rule, and had a uh, that deeply affected me uh, as a person who loves democracy, loves India. Uh, so I think I, I should say that maybe that was the beginning of my activism on the human rights front. And uh, I was back in 2000. I've seen back in 2002, yes. Yes, sir. Uh, I traveled extensively uh, in Gujarat at that time, actually, to, to turn the clock back a year. Uh, 2001, 
uh, was just the beginning of my activism after I had retired from the corporate life. And uh, while we were in India, the earthquake well, can struck. I, can I actually, um, to not interrupt you, but but to interrupt you, can I put a little bit of a pin in that and, and trace back just yeah. uh, before? Yeah. So you, you had uh, just recently, 2001, 2002, before all this happened that got you involved in human rights work. You'd retired or were near retirement uh, from a career as a healthcare professional, um, and 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 as I as I asked, um, uh, you came to you came to uh, to the U.S. You're now in California, but you came to the U.S. from India, didn't you? You were you were born in India. Yes, uh, I was born in India in 1947, just a few weeks after India's independence. So in some ways, uh, the country of India and I are uh, uh, siblings, very close siblings. You're a child of India's independence. I came to this country in 1969, 68 actually, September 68. Okay, to Canada initially. What, what, what brought you to North America? Uh, what, at that time, uh, trying to get my advanced degree, uh, master's, uh, very few of us at that time actually contemplated staying back in the U.S., seeking jobs we were all we were all coming here at the time to get advanced degrees and uh, that was my intent too uh, when i came to the us of course things changed rapidly after that so after after you came to the us and you came you know many many people who were seeking this 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 uh, better life you came for your educational purposes you got into this career in, in healthcare and um as you were in this career in healthcare was there was there anything uh in your life uh, during this time that uh, uh, preceded or connected to, to what you're doing now? Uh, was there any kind of a connection between this involvement in the healthcare industry and your passion for what you do today? Uh, not really. I don't think my profession had much to do with uh, what I'm doing now. Um, but it's almost as if uh, some of my childhood ideas about India and about various social issues had stayed with me, and I had kind of deferred them for a few decades. So as soon as I retired, I was very quick to uh, uh, get back into what I knew was my calling, which is to work on human rights. So it didn't have anything to do with the career, as other than the fact that I think the career gave me the freedom, I, I suppose, the financial freedom to, to actually engage full-time in uh, human rights work. Well, that's certainly at least uh, one of the things one could desire to get from a career is to finance or give you the financial freedom to go after whatever your true passion really is, whatever's really in your heart. What was that um, that was in your childhood upbringing, those ideas that you mentioned uh, about uh, these ideas from, from your childhood in India that really um, stuck with you? I mean, you must have been, what, 20, 25 when you came to North America? Uh, yeah, young, younger than that, uh, 20, yeah, so about that, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think things that stick out in my mind about my childhood education are two things. Uh, one, I was schooled in the local language, Canada, in Bangalore, and, uh, those, and I... So you, you grew up in Karnataka? Karnataka, yeah, in Bangalore. Okay. And... I went to a school that was very Gandhian. You know, we had got, just gotten independence. 
just 10, 15 years before that. And this school was entirely set up on uh, admiration for Gandhi and Nehru. And uh, so that was the environment of the school. But more importantly, we were also exposed to uh, some of the progressive Hindu thought uh, uh, of people like uh, 12th century Saint Basavanna, who actually fought even in, as long ago as 12th century, had fought against the caste system uh, and rejected Vedic Hinduism uh, and wrote a series of poems for the common man. And he also had organized at that time uh, a debating society, if you will, debating society where people from all castes were welcome. Very unusual for such a long time ago. And for that, he was harassed, uh, intimidated by the local rulers, and his uh, his disciples were supposedly trampled by elephants as punishment. So that really stuck in my mind, the entire idea of a caste system and the fact that somebody like Baswana had fought against it. So that's one well, side and, of the story. And that's, that's very vivid imagery also, especially as a young young yeah. man and young boy to have stuck in your head is this idea of this this progressive uh, activist working for civil rights and his followers being trampled by elephants simply for standing up for, for human rights. Yeah, absolutely. So that stuck in your mind. Yeah, that's one side of the story. The other side is I was exposed in parallel to my childhood friends and neighbors who were staunch Hindu Mahasabha members and people and, and just just for the record for those who may not already be in the know that Hindu Mahasabha was founded what I believe early 1900s is one of the uh initial Hindu nationalist movements in, in India right uh Hindu Mahasabha is the predecessor to the today's uh, RSS Rashtriya and its founder Savarkar uh, wrote a lengthy essay called Hindutva, which has become uh, kind of a Bible, so to speak, for the RSS people. Uh, and it's also one of his uh, Hindu Mahasabha members who was uh, involved in assassinating uh, Mahatma Gandhi. So that's the background. So these uh, people of my age and uh, class, my classmates actually, were heavily involved in the RSS and RSS Shakas. Mm. And in fact, for a short period of time, I too was in an RSS Shaka in Bangalore. This is actually uh, the first I've heard of this, Raju. At your young age, you were involved in, in an RSS uh, Shaka, or uh, Shaka is the word for a branch of the RSS. For a, for, a, for a brief period, no doubt, because my friends had, uh, had uh, you know, pressured us to join, all, of, all three brothers. Okay. Uh, but... As it happened, I moved away from that neighborhood, and uh, when I joined a new school, I was exposed to the Boy Scouts of America, Boy Scouts, basically, of India, uh, which gave me a very different compare and contrast, the the fanaticism, belief in myths that my friends from the RSS happened to believe in, uh, and that contrast also helped me kind of ground myself in the idea of universal universalism in, you know, in, in respecting all religions and so forth. So in a strange way, uh, in a Gandhian school, exposed to neighbors who are RSS and joining the Boy Scouts in that Gandhian school, all kind of came together to kind of form this imagery in my mind about what India is, should be about, what India is about, pluralism, secularism, respect for all religions. Uh, and uh, that 
foundation of RSS stayed with me because we had a lot of arguments with this classmate of ours. And to me, it was very clear. This was the late 50s, mm-hmm. uh, the fanaticism of the RSS, which to this day, uh, their arguments are very, very similar to what I heard from my young friend <laughs> that long ago. So that, that was kind of a... So this is what I meant by... This is all in my mind, but I had to defer any action or activity on that through my formative, you know, career and marriage and family, and then and, and of course through, through an immigration journey, which, yeah, which is one of the hardest things that anybody in this world can go through, as far as a, 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 a upheaval in your personal life and getting reestablished in a in a new country, new culture. And uh, certainly, certainly uh, a major challenge in and of its own. And in addition to being exposed to directly exposed to racism in this country, which I did in Detroit. Yeah. So all of that. Especially coming over into this country in in what, the the 60s, 70s? It was 69, 69, 70s when I was there in uh, Detroit and uh, Windsor, Canada, where uh, I felt very, very... uh, discriminated against because of the color of my skin so that also stayed with me uh, but anyway as i said uh, the time to act upon all of these beliefs came in in 2002 uh, so yeah i can i can imagine especially coming over at that time in uh, even in canada uh, especially perhaps more so in the u.s um that one coming as an indian trying to become an indian american would feel particularly isolated. We, we we didn't have that kind of like thriving Indian American diaspora presence yeah. and culture and pockets that we have today, where you really have a chance to come over and and, and fit in and and be 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 uh, made to be felt uh, made to feel at home. Um, yeah. And then of course, although we certainly have a host of problems today that still need to be dealt with from the perspective of racism in America. Issues of especially of white supremacy, of course. Um, thank God, but and I can only I can only imagine and, and attempt to empathize. But but thank God, at least today, like I hope that the situation for people that are coming over from India or anywhere else and trying to uh, make a better life for themselves here in in this country and, and become part of our country uh, find it an easier path in general than it was way back yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I reflect on that, Peter, and I said, uh, we had to fend for our, ourselves as first generation immigrants. We had to face racism. We went ahead, we went on, made a career. Uh, I sometimes wonder if the current generation of immigrants from India, uh, uh, the path is very easy, but I also sometimes wonder whether the day after they land here, they expect everything to work out for them and all kinds of rights to be guaranteed to them. Uh, without realizing that the first generations have had paved the way for them to come here, as well as the civil rights movement, and to come here the very next day and start talking about Hindu phobia sometimes annoys me, but uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> well, so then, you know, of course, in context of this this chatter about Hindu phobia, which I know you're oftentimes, despite being Hindu, Despite being a leader in this Hindus for Human Rights organization, uh, you oftentimes face this allegation yourself. I, I know, and hopefully we can touch on that a little bit uh, to come, but I know that certainly must feel uh, deeply uncomfortable. 
Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, as you mentioned, uh, even before this 2002, already in 2001, um, you were starting to get involved or pay more attention to what was going on over in India in regards to human rights and and I guess the internationalist movement. And why was that? And what, what drew your attention there? Actually, uh, what brought me, uh, what brought me to Hindu nationalism was the earthquake in Gujarat in 2001. Uh, since we happened to be in India, I was actively pursuing relief and rehabilitation for victims of Gujarat and uh, came away with a lot of admiration for the uh, civil society in Gujarat at that time. And, and exactly a year later, uh, maybe slightly longer than a year, 2002, when I went back following the large-scale pogroms against Muslims, I was amazed at the contrast. The same people who who had come uh, with all of their heart to help victims of the earthquake seemed to be now uh, thirsting for uh, vengeance and blood and so forth uh, with the pogroms against Muslims. So that contrast made me aware there's a huge, huge, deep-seated, deep-seated prejudice against Muslim minorities and Christian minorities that had shown its face in Gujarat. And I knew that this would not be confined to Gujarat um, because it had basically succeeded in bringing past history as though it was happening today. In other words, go back to historical Muslim invasions and destruction of temples and so forth. Reawaking historical grievances, some of which may be legitimate, but from hundreds of years ago in order to justify some kind of uh, 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 spirit of vengeance today. Exactly. And that, so I knew the potential for that kind of uh, propaganda to spread to the rest of the country. And that's when I decided to get involved actively working on communal harmony projects, uh, Hindu Muslim dialogue, uh, and those kinds of things. So uh, that must be. Uh... Because you saw this 2001, then you saw 2002, and you mentioned the, the same people that were actively working for relief in 2001. Then you saw in 2002, same people involved in uh, this uh, March, February, March uh, 2002 pogrom uh, against Muslims. Uh, that must be a very odd dichotomy. And, and I mean, you know, I was myself as somebody aware of the... Um, workings of the internationalist movement, the uh, organization, uh, structural organization of the Hindu nationalist groups. That is something that we do see a lot is we do see um, many of them do engage in very legitimate and even admirable um, um, charity or, or, or relief work at the same time that they're pushing uh, this sort of um, xenophobia or hatred or even violence. So what do you think about how you how do you explain that? Uh, yeah, first, let me let me kind of correct uh, the way I put it. Uh, as far as the uh, significant part of the NGOs that I worked with during the earthquake, uh, they were equally appalled at the pogroms and they worked on helping the victims. So when I say the same people, I'm talking about in a broad sense, uh, the Gujarati civil society. Yeah, not, the, not, not the majority of people offering relief. Right. So right. Yeah, specific segment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
and uh, uh, I mean, take the, take this uh, take this two thousand one earthquake as an example. Uh, we we didn't make any distinction as to who was getting aid, where the relief supplies would be channeled, and all of that. It didn't matter whether they were Hindu, Hindu or Muslim victims. But what we heard is in in Kutch, uh, RSS had or VHP had kind of a blocked off an area as if it was their own territory to provide relief. And any charity, any charity, uh, any trucks that came there with supply, they would say, "Okay, we take it up. We will take it from here." And literally hijacked the trucks into their territory. And whoever was Muslim in that area, they would demand that they say Jai Shri Ram before they got their supplies. So here is a here is how you see charity working in parallel with fanatical ideas of forcing Muslims to chant something that they would rather not uh, and try to exert their superiority. So that that kind of a parallelism you see now in the U.S. as well, because there is a lot of charity work. They do good work in COVID and all of that. But it also comes associated with an ideology of hate. Uh, so it's a consistent thing. And I think it's very well planned. Uh, as a larger RSS ideology, seva, seva as a means, as a means to changing the hearts and minds of seva, people. Seva being this idea of service. Yeah, and, and yeah, but uh, yeah, seva being a, 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 a ideological means of, as you were saying, service. Yeah, yeah. And but I it's think used as an ideological uh, in in this specific context by these groups. It's used as an ideological driving force. To advance their own causes. Exactly, exactly. And uh, unfortunately, in this country, uh, people since people don't know the flip side of the that ideology, a uh, lot of lot of our lawmakers are taken in by all these advances uh, of uh, charity and uh, uh, liaison with uh, the, that the Hindu organizations, Hindu supremacist organizations do during various festivals and those kinds of things. So, yeah. So. Well, as they say, it's amazing how much work you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. But as, as I believe you've seen, as I certainly know, I've seen uh, both in India and, and then here in the U.S. with RSS uh, or linked organizations with the RSS of Silk. Um, they, they do a lot of work uh, on the condition that they get the credit from uh, my perspective. So, but let's talk a little bit more. So this was 2002, and then um, you you were already in India in 2001, helping with relief efforts. And then 2002, this pogrom hits in, in, in Gujarat, and and now the chief or now the prime minister of Mo, of India, Modi, was at the time the chief minister, the head of the state of Gujarat, and he, he was variously accused of some kind of uh, involvement in or allowing this pogrom. Now. Along this, along this way, uh, you, uh, you know, the pogrom occurred. All this violence happened. Uh, approximately 1,000, 2,000 uh, Muslims estimated uh, were killed. But uh, you ended up, after the fact, uh, you, you ended up on the ground in, in Gujarat. Is that correct? Uh, we were there. See, the pogroms were in February, March, and we were there in September. And we being a group of... Uh, uh, U.S.-based Indians of all faiths. We went together on a uh, what we called as a Sadbhavana uh, mission 
promoting peace, Sadbhavana mission. Uh, and uh, we met with the victims, we met with all kinds of NGOs, we met with politicians. Um, Narendra Modi refused to meet with us uh, at that time. We also met in Delhi with the National Human Rights Commission and the politicians, urging them to take, especially the government, uh, the Congress governments, uh, Congress politicians, to take a strong stand against what happened uh, in Gujarat. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the, their view was, uh, I, I remember one Congress politician telling a senior Congress politician, uh, telling us, you know, why in the conflicts of Gujarat and Narendra Modi, why go through surgery when you can cure the problem with an aspirin? Just think about the import, import of that. A Congress politician basically saying it's not such a big deal. Let's not do something drastic with Narendra Modi. Sounds like treat the, pain. treating the symptom instead of the disease. Yeah. 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 So that is, uh, I'm sure he, this particular gentleman must be thinking about that statement today uh, and what they could have done to stop this, uh, uh, you know, rush to a Hindu Rashtra under Modi's rule that's happening today. Why go through a surgery if you can, if you treat it with an aspirin instead. Now, uh, if that you were getting that uh, kind of uh, mentality, that sort of response from a senior uh, opposition politician at the time, uh, not they weren't an opposition then, they're opposition now, of course, um, but at the time, um, as as um, kind of uh, outcome of this trip, um, how do you how do you feel uh, it went? What do you think was the overall impact of, of this? Now, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, in context of in India, or perhaps even even longer term, because I, as you mentioned, you went there with some uh, people, uh, multiple multi faith uh, group of Indian Americans. Um, I imagine that probably led to the development of, of longer term relationships. Yeah, well, I I would say as far as impact within India, probably minimal, but as far as the impact in the diaspora of us coming together uh, during that trip and afterwards has remained with us to the to the extent that today the very same people who are in that trip, some of the same people are at the forefront of the fight against uh, Modi's rule in India. And one of them you're going to speak to on Friday. Um, yeah, we'll just so, name we'll just name drop him right John, Again, John, John Prabhadas, uh, who's who's uh, one of the founders of Federation of Indian American Christian Organizations of North America, FIACONA, which, um, again, um, you know, if, if, with respect, and I say this act with absolutely with respect, is like yourself, Raj, who's an old timer, uh, who's been in this for, for 20 plus years, who's been faithful. In, in struggling for uh, uplifting human rights and upholding human dignity um, in India. Um, and uh, that's uh, certainly uh, one of the reasons I want to talk with him. Absolutely why I'm so glad to be, be uh, chatting with you today. Yeah, yeah. So let me complete my thought on that. The impact uh, would have been, I think, if we had continued with our, uh, with our advocacy, uh, because after coming back from India, I started an initiative called Promise of India. Promise of India was simply a pledge 
to support the Indian democracy, secular democracy, and to speak up. Uh, and it was endorsed by a whole range of people, including the business community here in the Bay Area and elsewhere, uh, endorsed by two former prime ministers of India, one former president of India. So everybody sensed there was a real danger to Indian constitution. Uh, over 250 organizations signed on, signed up. Now, that would have been the pathway we would have been on, except for one thing, 20. 2004 elections, which ejected the BJP Vajpayee government and brought in Manmohan Singh, suddenly made things look a lot rosier to all of us, saying, oh my God, we've already achieved our objective. This fanatical BJP government has been kicked out and uh, Manmohan Singh is in charge and given his background, I think that everything will be fine. So we literally stopped in our tracks, uh, not to and not do anything except for the visa ban that we can talk about in a minute. Uh, so the the impact of that uh, trip that we had was more to do with the fact that uh, a group of us have kept in touch and continue to advocate for peace and pluralism in India. But I don't think it had much of an impact in India itself. That's one of the amazing things about uh, just putting your hand to the plow and trying to do the right thing and moving forward without looking back as you're attempting to do the right thing and walk that good path is that sometimes it leads to unintended consequences that you don't foresee, as you mentioned, maybe that particular trip in India as far as the outcome in India itself didn't have so much in the moment impact, but it's beautiful to see one of the outcomes is over over 20 years later, uh, still having developed in uh, these relationships, which are now flourishing. And just a side note for the listeners, because as I was um, hearing you speak, Raju, uh, did remind me that a moment ago I referred to your meeting with the senior Congress uh, politician, and I think you said to late 2002 as a meeting with uh, the Congress uh, now being in opposition, then being uh, not in opposition. They were actually in opposition at that time because, as you mentioned, Congress didn't actually take power again nationally until 2004. So, um, as you said, uh, once 2004 hit and Congress did come uh, into power, I can understand that actually, especially for somebody that has so much else to do, um, you know, for, for an activist that's been applying themselves for, for a while, that must have come as a huge breath of relief um, and, and uh, kind of felt like a moment when you can you can sit back, you can relax, and expect things to go on track. Uh, but um, well, of course, for a while they, they they were a lot calmer. But there was there was this one hiccup, and actually a hiccup that turned into into a victory uh, for um, uh, the anti Hindu uh, anti Hindu nationalist. Um, movements and, and figures here in America, which was in 2005. Now, in 2005, uh, as I understand it, uh, Modi, then chief minister of Gujarat, had been invited by this Indian American hoteliers group to speak at a, con at a, con a conference, a convention in Florida. Um, but there was a concerted effort to, to oppose that. And um, I understand uh, John Prabhadas was involved in that. I just spoke yesterday with this gentleman, uh, Pastor Ben Marsh, formerly of Dalla Freedom Network, who was involved, although more peripherally involved with that. Um, but 
from my understanding, Roger, you were kind of a point person um, and uh, kind of in the inner circle. Now, what happened? Um, how did you how did you get involved in that? Um, why? And um, what was your experience? Was it was it a, a walk in the park? Um, not exactly a walk in the park. Uh, see, let me. Um, my involvement was with a group of people who were trying to highlight uh, Modi's uh, complicity in the two thousand two violence, and uh, his coming to the U.S. was an opportunity to educate the American public about what had happened because it had been completely forgotten. It wasn't in anybody's consciousness at that time. Everybody was, uh, America was busy thinking about the wars in the Middle East instead of about how 2,000 yeah. Muslims had just been massacred in India. Yeah. 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 So I personally, I was of the opinion, uh, uh, let him come here and let's show uh, our, our opposition by protests and so forth that wherever he's speaking, uh, that to me would have been what my preference would be. But then uh, as things developed, uh, as the Hoteliers Association actually acceded to our protest and more or less, uh, I don't know the particulars, more or less uh, disinvited him or disinvited his personal invitation. And I think he ended up still speaking on uh, on uh, uh, on the phone or or a remote video conference or something like that. Uh, so the momentum at that time was built up with a combination of forces. Uh, we didn't know where it was going to end up uh, until one, one fine day we heard that the, his visa had in, be, indeed been revoked. Uh, I think some people give, give me too much credit for that. Uh, they certainly, uh, yeah, I don't deserve that credit. Uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm happy right here right now to declare that you that you were the uh, crucial uh, linchpin behind the entire thing. But are you saying you don't want to you don't you don't want to go with that title? Uh, let me put it this way: I was uh, I was involved more in communication, in letter writing campaigns on behalf of the group of people, uh, but I was simply uh, speaking for the group. So in that sense, my name may have been more visible than others. Uh, but when the decision, and nobody expected any such decision at all. And so when it came through, it was a bit of a surprise uh, to us. And uh, I still don't know exactly what actually you know tipped the balance, but I would assume that all of our efforts together uh, tipped the balance because the evidence was clear, reports had come out with all, all the information. Uh, so once that decision was made, I did write a thank you letter to the Bush administration, which was which kind of went viral in those days, because the person I was speaking to was not exactly my favorite person in the administration, uh, one of the neocons. But uh, I made it a point. Not to tell exactly. Him I, your, uh, you know, I'm going to surmise not exactly your favorite person, and what might not have exactly been your your favorite administration. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but but I did make it a point to say I disagree with a lot of your foreign policy decisions, but in this one instance, I agree with you for doing this because it is the only option that was left to us because the Indian media had moved away from, from the program. They had been silenced. 
one or two corporate uh, speaker uh, business leaders who had spoken up had been silenced uh, and there was nothing going on and the and the congress government basically actually was not going to do anything to follow up uh, in what happened in gujarat in fact manmohan singh after the visa ban actually protested which is i guess he is the prime minister of the country he is supposed to do that protocol or whatever he actually objected to the us denying modi a visa now, so our point of view then is as us citizens and residents who wanted to do something about highlighting uh, the danger to democracy in india we have very few options we don't vote in india uh, and here uh we are voting for a government that's supposed to safeguard democracy all across the world presumably uh therefore to us the only option left was to highlight the fact that modi was complicit in this massive violence uh, and the visa ban was therefore welcome by all of us uh it's a different matter if he wore it as a you know badge of honor and went went about boasting some people uh, fault us for this whole episode saying you guys helped put modi in power that i think that's highly exaggerated i don't i don't think yeah so um, so so the, yeah um, i'm sorry about the noise outside here um yeah that's uh interesting point and and before we move on to uh uh you know getting a little bit closer to the present day i have heard this this argument recently uh i don't uh know which side i settle on um certainly i would argue from my perspective that uh the right thing to do in 2005 was to get modi's visa stripped away from him and 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 it was but i have also heard people uh report that maybe it ended up uh 20 years later or 17 years later a uh, backfiring in terms of actually um helping to popularize him and and build him up among his internationalist uh uh supporters and devotees both in India and the US what, what do you think about that yeah i mean as i was saying you know we had to do what we thought was the right thing at that time support the right policies uh and uh, things could have gotten you know things could have gone completely the other way if the manmohan singh government had recognized the danger of what had happened in gujarat and as soon as they came to power if they had implemented certain actions that would prevent this from happening elsewhere for example you know banning the bajrang dal i'm just i'm just picking one example and they failed to do that it's almost like they completely uh, try to erase what happened in gujarat from their consciousness part of it could well be that even some congress people congress party people were involved in in the violence uh, i don't know uh, but so to say that uh, the modi visa ban was the wrong thing to do because it actually elevated him as a martyr or sort i don't i don't it may have had some role but i I I don't think too much about it. We did what we thought was right at that point and uh, things could have gone the other way had there been much more uh action by the ruling government. Maybe a little bit or a little bit less action too as in if the Manmohan Singh government hadn't uh hadn't uh, criticized the denial but had just uh, either been exactly. silent. Exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, right. 
So that was 2005. Now, now over the ensuing nine years, Modi came to power, of course, in, in 2014. Um, were were you mostly uh, out of the activist game uh, up until then? And I mean, at, at some at some point, uh, I, I would hope that you've had a chance to at least attempt to enjoy your your retirement. Uh, so, yeah. in, in those nine years, was there was there yeah. anything like that, or that was my intent? And I did, uh, I we did spend some time overseas doing other things, uh, but. But I also got involved in the other project in India um, because I thought I needed to do something that was potentially could help uh, uh, millions of poorer people in India who had no access to social uh, safety network because of lack of identification. And uh, the other project uh, promised an identity uh, identification paper to everybody uh, so I got involved in that. Uh, so I was actually a volunteer for the government of India for about a year. And uh, in fact, the name Adar was actually suggested by me. <laughs> so for good or bad, my, my name is stuck with that project. Um, but today in retrospect, of course, I, I don't want to sidetrack, but today I have a very different view of uh, what an uh, identity project with a huge database with people's fingerprints and uh, uh, could do in the hands of a government that simply doesn't care for any privacy or any laws or rules. And of course, I had no way of imagining that uh, in these years, the government would transition to uh, autocratic uh, uh, government like we have seen. But anyway, so I did that as part of my uh, uh, contribution to, to India uh, and then pretty much uh, retired until uh, 2019. See, in 2014, when Modi got elected, that uh, it wasn't enough for me to give up my retired life and come back to activism because I always hoped that all the, division, all the divisiveness during the campaigns were BJP's way of getting to power. And once they acquired power, that they would focus on uh, bread and butter issues, employment issues. Uh, people called me naive then, and I guess I was. Uh, well, I mean, back when the BJP first came to national power in, in, in 98, uh, it wasn't, I mean, I, one could argue one way or the other, but arguably the rhetoric that they used may not have been quite as inflammatory to come to power. It was the same type of rhetoric, the same the same chatter, the same supremacist type of type of talk, wasn't it? And then we had ninety eight to two thousand and four with the BJP in power, and they didn't do uh, anything like what the government uh, of the BJP in twenty fourteen onwards ended up doing. Yeah. So I could that 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 may have been an understandable sentiment at the time. Yeah. So uh, when 2019 elections happened, uh, that's when it was a wake up call to me, saying, you know, no, this these guys have too many IOUs to the Hindu supremacist groups, RSS and others, and VHP, uh, and there is no way this government can get away from quote-unquote, fulfilling those promises. And the moment I heard that Amit Shah was going to be the home minister, to me, the writing was on the wall. 
this is it. This is what they've been waiting for uh, for over 90 years. This will be the fulfillment of various promises. What was it about what was it about the Ahmed Shah in particular that uh, caused you to see the writing on the wall? Uh, because from what I had heard, uh, this is all third-hand information, though, what I had heard uh, of his role uh, in working with Modi in, in Gujarat, people had a certain reputation for him as a ruthless politician. And uh, this whole issue of uh, um, attempted uh, assassination of Modi and then encounter killings of people that were involved, a uh, lot of them, uh, those kinds of things, people kind of, you know, kind of look to Amit Shah as perhaps the architect of the Modi plan uh, in, in in many ways. So I think that's repeat. It's the reputation. I had no direct evidence of any kind, but just the reputation he brought uh, from Gujarat uh, was the writing was on the wall and. Uh, so that's when I, we decided to start Hindus for Human Rights um, because I think I finally came to the realization that all these uh, 20, 30 years that I'd been working for Indian causes were I never had to wear my faith on my shoulder. I, it was always, I'm Indian, I'm Indian American, this is what I believe in, this is what I need to do. Never had to say I'm a Hindu or I'm a proud Hindu. But in retrospect, it seemed to me that people like me who wanted to do something and didn't claim a Hindu voice, in fact, were leaving a huge vacuum for the Hindutva people to occupy. Were you, were you uh, particularly religious but before then? I wouldn't, say, I, I wouldn't call myself particularly religious because, as I said, when I influenced by people like uh, Baswana and others and uh, rejecting the rituals. Uh, I always thought of myself as a progressive Hindu, looking to the good aspects of Hinduism uh, and rejecting aspects like caste and so forth. Uh, was I a observing Hindu? Did I do puja every day? No. Uh, but I always loved the uh, loud visiting temples, learning the history, uh, trying to make connections uh, and trying to look at look at history in a positive sense to to think of what progressive Hinduism means. Yes, so in, in I'm a practicing Hindu because that's I'm not a practicing any other faith. So by default, I'm a practicing Hindu, but I'm not an Orthodox Hindu. To answer your question, so by the time of 2019, though. Um, you, you felt this compulsion that um, as this is happening over in India, as, as, as this, especially this idea of, 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 of being a proud Hindu is turning into this idea of, of the distortion, uh, distortion of, of, of the faith that, that you practice, that you own, um, you, you felt a compulsion that you had to step forward and, and say something. Yeah, so that's... Uh, so that's when uh, I accidentally uh, uh, got in touch with uh, Sunita, who had kind of traveled the same path in many ways. Uh, and uh, we seem to have so much in common in terms of we need to speak up with a Hindu voice. Uh, uh, that's when we made the decision to found Hindus for Human Rights. Uh, 
The Human Rights Part is exactly what everybody is striving for, whether it's Amnesty International or you know uh, any other group. But the Hindu part that makes us different, saying we will as much as possible speak as Hindus to a Hindu audience to say, hey, is this what you learned? Is this what the Hinduism that you believed in and your grandparents taught you? Uh, is lynching part of that? Uh, is dictating what other people can eat? Is Was that part of your Hinduism? Uh, to raise these kinds of questions, uh, were you is marrying somebody outside the faith? Uh, is that part of Hinduism? Uh, for us to be able to raise those questions legitimately, we need to speak as Hindus. And uh, so that's what we decided to do in 2019. Uh, at that time, uh, a lot of people were skeptical, uh, especially people from the left would challenge them. Why do you want Hindu in your name? Uh, why don't you just call call yourself Indians for Hindu, Hindus for Human Rights or Indians for Human Rights? And our answer would be, well, that makes us no different than others who are fighting this fight. Uh, what makes us different? And uh, even today, some people have those questions, but uh, I feel very strongly there was a right decision to speak up as Hindus because we have now been able to reclaim a lot of spaces that was hitherto completely occupied by Hindu nationalists, uh, particularly in the U.S., whether it's in faith, interfaith groups. Uh, we are participating in the World Parliament of Religions in a major way, which is now talking about today, tomorrow. This, this is happening in Chicago this week. In Chicago. Titled as human rights. What is the faith leader's role in human rights? Which is exactly what our topic is about. Uh, and uh, all of this would not have been possible if we had simply been just another human rights organization. And then our welcome in various spaces in D.C., uh, our welcome by congressional officers who suddenly now see an alternative Hindu voice uh, to those of, uh, like, for example, Hindus American Foundation. So I think it was the right strategic decision to do, but, but we are still a minority. Progressive Hindus speaking for the human rights and religious freedom of all communities, at least visibly, at least publicly, is still a minority. So <laughs> I call ourselves the new minority of India. Well, my perspective um, has been that even to a large extent in India, but especially in the U.S., that this this far right, this internationalist uh, uh, element, these groups um, that they represent, uh, looking, for instance, at the Indian American population and at the percentage of them which are Hindus, that they actually represent a, a pretty small uh, minority of that population. They just happen to be the most organized, networked, and 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 deep pocketed and 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 loudest. Um, a group within within that population, even though they're the smallest. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, Hindus for Human Rights or those those uh, within your your network, or certainly who have uh, um, whether they're directly connected to the organization or not, have that that uh, passion in their hearts, that belief in in, in their hearts. Uh, also, um, you know, may not be such a large element. Do you think? Do you think a largest element, um, whether it's in India or or here among the Hindu population? is is a, just a, a, a silent passive that see because one of my one of my takes is that whatever the issue is uh, in India outside India anywhere in the world 
um, especially when it comes to issues of human rights or issues of, of um, advocacy, that the 99.9% of the population are just everyday people who don't want to have to be bothered to think about this stuff because they're spending too much time trying to live their lives, keep a roof over their heads, put food on their tables and, and bring up their, their children. Um, but do you think that that is what represents the bulk of the Hindu population? Yes, I really do. Because when you look at the demographics of India, uh, the kind of population that are that is in the diaspora uh, probably represents less than 20% of the demographics of India. If you look at so-called uh, Dalits, you look at Adivasis, the indigenous peoples of India, uh, or you look at so-called other backward castes, which is the largest segment of Hindu demographics, they're not represented much in the diaspora. So it's almost like 70% of the Hindu population or somewhere around that number are not represented here. So for this, this minority of Hindus to claim uh, that they're the sole voice of Hindus, uh, they, I mean, they can claim to be the voice of Hindu diaspora, it's fine, that may be statistically correct. But to speak for all Hindus in the world, uh, uh, I I think it is uh, it is false. Uh, it is sad because they simply do not represent uh, the large majority of Hindus. Uh, as far as silence in India, uh, yes. Uh, uh, as you know, India has... Uh, I think the demographics of the younger population, younger generation, anywhere from 18 to 25, is the largest segment of the India's population. Uh, their uh, primary goal is a career, uh, passing exams, careers, and so forth. They just don't have time to uh, get involved too much in uh, politics, as they think of this as more as politics than as a religious strife. And... Uh, those of them who are unemployed are directly targets of these hate groups. If you see any image of people being beaten up in the, on the streets of India, you see all those. They're all young men who should be actually at work. They're probably not at work because they don't have a job. So somebody hands them a stick or a sword. They're out there with uh, Bajramdal and others beating up Muslims. In fact, I just saw a video where this guy just uh, rides up on a scooter somewhere in uh, Hyderabad or you know, somewhere in Uttar Pradesh, takes out a gun and shoots a father carrying a child because he looks Muslim. And it's just unbelievable to me anyway. So I, I think that's what it is. It's the giving fodder to a large segment of the population who, uh, who don't have any productive work to get involved in. And uh, that's one of the reasons they also hide, uh, do their best, the rulers, to hide statistics on unemployment because they don't want to um, publicly share those types of statistics that people will wake up to. Well, as as we you know begin to wrap up our conversation, Raju, I, I did want to ask you one thing about uh, Hindu human rights, um, and, and especially for your personal experience, um, is... Um, as you as you said, uh, the, especially when it comes to people actually involved in the organization, it's it, it's it's a smaller number, but but growing. 
Um, and there's there's a lot of backlash I know that I've seen against uh, Hindus for Human Rights by a lot of these Hindu nationalist or Hindu nationalist sympathetic organizations. And a lot of it could be very vicious, um, you know, uh, it, uh, to the extent that I would say basically people are accusing you of being a traitor to your religion, that sort of thing. How do you how does that make you feel? Um, how do you how do you handle that on a personal level? And, and and stay strong and and the commitment to what you're doing and to your to your beliefs when you're faced with stuff like that. You know, personally, I made a decision before founding Hindus for Human Rights that I will keep out of all social media uh, because I've been trolled even in the 2002 2004 uh, to the to the point that they outed my street address and basically asking people to harass me. So uh, so I had made a decision to keep, I still don't have a personal Twitter account, for example. Uh, I seldom use Facebook. So that's one way of uh, uh, keeping away from the noise, so to speak. Um, but from time to time, uh, other members of Hindus for Human Rights do, you know, copy some of these uh, tweets uh, that they see. Uh, so I tend to largely ignore them. However, if somebody takes the trouble of writing to Hindus for Human Rights and say, I strongly object to what you're doing, this is the problem, and they have the courage to put their name at the bottom of the letter, then I feel that I owe them a response. And I try my best uh, to give them a response. And, uh, and I do ultimately believe that directly engaging with people with different views is the best way ultimately to change the minds of uh, large segments of uh, the Hindu population. And I've invited some of these uh, people for a debate uh, several times, <laughs> no takers so far, um, but I will continue on that, on that pathway. Uh, saying, yes, we will do everything that HFHR is doing to bring attention to the evils of uh, the Hindutva rule. But I'm open to dialoguing with anybody as long as I follow rules of civility. And that's the objective of our Desh Videsh conversations, uh, which we're doing in Silicon Valley. It's saying, you know, we Videsh. will present our point of view. It's, it's called the Desh Videsh. Just for our uh, listeners, what, is that, what does that mean? Desh Videsh actually means... Uh, 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 Desh is your country, Videsh is outside your country. So the diasporic Indian population were talking about India and the U.S. at the same time. That dialogue becomes Desh-Videsh conversations. And uh, the idea is to present a set of panelists who with diverse views on a subject, particular subject, but invite Modi supporters, BJP supporters, anybody who wants to come they can come to these conversations as long as they promise to be civil and not interrupt the speakers. So that's an, uh, that's an attempt by HFHR to encourage conversations. Uh, and it's been that idea has been reasonably successful. Uh, like the last meeting, uh, I had invited the HAF supporter of the caste bill in California who had debated with me in front of the Sacramento Capitol. Uh, we strongly disagreed with each other, but he was civil. So I said, oh, come on over, uh, participate in this conversation. So that's something I will continue to do. So ignore the trolls, ignore the noise, 
engage with people who have something to say, even if they strongly criticize you, and then try to put your point of view is what I feel that uh, we need to do. And I think Hindus for Human Rights has a special role, given that the majority community is the one uh, that can change things happening in India. I oftentimes repeat that in conversations about this issue with people uh, wherever I go is that you know of course I'm, I'm an outsider and that I'm not even Indian um, but I'm, I'm you know I love India I love uh, the Indian people that uh, welcome me to, to work on these issues um, but for for people who um, want to work on make progress on the issue of combating Hindu nationalism in order to uh, make progress, you don't necessarily have to be Hindu, but in, in order to achieve that final victory, that is going to be left just as it was, for instance, with my own faith, with Christianity and what's happening ha happening today, but certainly has happened in the past. Christians need to be the ones rooting out supremacy from Christianity. Muslims need to be the ones rooting out supremacy from Islam. Hindus need to be the ones rooting out supremacy from from hinduism and because that's the only way it's going to be effective otherwise otherwise you're never going to actually uh, reach that point of final victory of, of uh, fully reforming and and um, uh, saving um the the truth and value of that religion yeah i agree i agree you have to speak from within uh, but i i do appreciate peter that uh, your passion for what's happening in India and trying to bring out facts uh, and fearlessly uh, st stating your views. And I know you are being personally trolled and attacked uh, ceaselessly, um, but I do appreciate uh, your role in, in oftentimes doing things that people from the subcontinent ought to be doing. So thank you for that. Just a couple last questions, Raju, and I thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Um, one is, uh, as far as the work of, of H4HR, before I, I, I move on to uh, your hopes, dreams, aspirations for the for the future, uh, with the work of H4HR, um, I know that the organization does a lot of engagement on the Hill with, with the U.S. Congress, um, and yet um, you've also been in this to one extent or another uh, as an activist for, for 20 plus years as we've covered. What I saw back in the early 2000s, so certainly 2005 Modi's visa denial might be one example, um, but there's others uh, of back in the early 2000s, US Congress and the US government in general being much more willing to openly, publicly uh, criticize uh, human rights violations in India, call them out, uh, speak against them, even on, rather routinely speak against them on the floor of the House, which was done oftentimes by multiple different members um, throughout the 2000s. And that was a time when the human rights situation was nowhere near what it is today um, under the Modi government. What do you think is wrong? What do you think has changed from early 2000s to, to the present day that has shut the mouths of, of almost all of the U.S. Congress and the U.S. administration in general and, and brought them to a point of being willing back when the situation really uh, as a whole wasn't that bad uh, and yet they were still speaking to a point when the situation is awful and they refuse to say anything? 
think the, the short answer is one word answer campaign donations <laughs> money that is uh i think the fact that the uh, the indian diaspora uh has become very strong in terms of their financial strength in terms of uh, making or breaking campaigns uh has become a very important issue in the last decade and uh uh, they are emulating uh, the pro-Israel groups and, in fact, uh, emulating a lot of the Zionist policies. Uh, in in that sense, uh, I would say they've been fairly successful. Uh, I would have never thought what happened in Israel could be copied by people related to such a large country as in India. But in the U.S., they're just definitely following that. So that's one issue. Secondly... Uh, the fact that the Indian American uh, Congress people who are now more visible uh, have been, some of them have been elected with money from the Hindu, right? Uh, the fact that they are not speaking up against what's happening in Modi's rule, the same people who every day... About- their presence, these Indian American, or they call the Samosa Caucus, these Indian American members of, of Congress... Um, their presence has uh, came uh, long after these early 2000s. I, I believe the first one elected, oh, who was it? Was it Ami Berra was the first one elected, I think, in like the 2010, first one, 2012. Yeah. yeah. So what's happening is when they don't take a lead in uh, critiquing India, and by no means critiquing means you have to condemn the policy of India-US relationship or friendship. They're not mutually exclusive, but they pretend they are mutually exclusive. And uh, if they don't speak up, I think the rest of the Congress people uh, are just holding back, saying, you know, oh, what does Rokanna think about it? Or what does Raja Krishnamurti think about this? Oh, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to co-sponsor it. Oh, I'm not going to take a risk. Why should I, you know, go out on the limb? That is the, uh, the uh, you know, we talk about the domino theory. There's something similar to that where when these four people are creating potentially uh, policies uh, that are larger than themselves, it's not just their constituency that's involved here. Um, they're actually helping uh, maintain a distance from Modi's human rights record. So that's the second part. And the third part is for better or for worse, the Biden administration and the Secretary Blinken's coming in with this kind of a Cold War politics that containing China, containing China, they keep talking about as Modi being the important part. And therefore, they openly admit, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to preach in India about human rights. Now, it's the same president who campaigned constantly talking about human rights and saying silence is complicity. I don't know what has happened. Uh, this is the largest example of human rights violations in a democracy, and he refuses to speak about it and says we don't want to preach India, uh, and that's a very sad state of affairs. I think the combination of these things, the three things, clout of the Indian American money, the uh, the the lead in the wrong direction of our Indian American Congress people that's preventing others from speaking up, and the Cold War type policy of the Blinken administration, which uh, is completely violating its own 
its own campaign rhetoric. Uh, I think those are the three things. And that's what we are fighting against. Well, on that note, um, especially with this whole uh, theory, idea, conception of, of containing China being what the U.S. is now focused on, which what the U.S. foreign policy wise is, is focused on, from my perspective, is uh, constantly shifting sands. Um, I remember uh, back when, you know, of course, you could say Cold War policy was containing Russia or the USSR. Uh, then it was containing uh, uh, global terrorism with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the threats against Iran and, and all of this. Now it's containing China. And from that perspective, speaking for myself as an American citizen uh, who's been highly critical of U.S. foreign policy on, on many fronts, uh, not just the India front, um, but especially on the front of uh, U.S. foreign policy being interventionist um, and uh, leading to foreign uh, meddling, which I uh, despise. As yourself as someone and myself as someone who wants to see the U.S. doing something different with, with India, um, going forward, what do you see? What do you see? What's your hope for the future? Um, you know, what's your what's your realistic expectation? And then in your wildest imaginings, if everything worked out perfectly, and especially in context of um, the desire that I, I believe you have, I know I have, for for the U.S. to respect India's sovereignty. Um, what 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 do you see? What, what do you see as a potential in one's wildest imaginations for what the U.S. can and should be doing? I think that. I think simple as uh, conveying to India as a, an ally and as a staunch friend, um, conveying that unless, um, not conveying that disappointment at the Indian government's failure to protect the lives and property of uh, religious minorities and uh, allowing for them to practice uh, their uh, faith unfettered, uh, I think that's a minimal, minimal one can expect this government to do. So minimal and would be just, just talk. So in my, in, in, in my uh, imagination of hope, <laughs> I hope that uh, something like that will happen uh, and then it will energize other people fighting for human rights uh, in India. Um, but outside of the administration, my hope, long-term hope, is that we'll get more and more younger generation of Indian Americans interested in what is happening to look at both the democracies and be more active. And maybe that will result in a few years' time of uh, uh, more progressive Indian American lawmakers. But more than that, they can have a huge multiplier effect in terms of changing attitudes of the community. And uh, that's the path we are on right now. We just completed our strategy meeting, Hindus for Human Rights, and we are not changing in our major priorities in terms of advocacy, but we're adding youth engagement as a major, major uh, project moving forward, uh, bringing Hindu and Muslim students on campuses, having dialogues, uh, providing a more holistic alternative to youth uh, besides Hinduism, progressive Hinduism, uh, kid, the kids are interested also in, you know, uh, uh, the issue of environment, uh, the issue of gender justice. 
so uh, indigenous peoples, right, try to provide a kind of a, a variety of things that the younger generation is interested in, not just about India issue, so that they will become better spokespeople for the Indian American community than the ones we have now. That is my hope, uh, because it's not a short-term issue. Even if the administration doesn't do anything or say anything, we have to keep moving forward in terms of uh, what our role in this uh, community is, in this country is, which is to speak up for democracy all over the world consistently. Um, so that that is really my hope. Well, I appreciate that, especially I, I, I very much agree. I oftentimes you know, come back to this about how all of this political engagement is important. It can be crucial. It can lead to change. But beyond that, far more important, although much more difficult, uh, is this is this social engagement to really um, educate people, get people involved, change the hearts of of the people around the country and in, in, in the society and the religions and in the institutions, and that that has. Um, longer term uh, impact than uh, just this this political engagement as important as that also is so with that uh Raju, any any final thoughts my my only final thought as india is going through the 77th independence day birthday uh, i never imagined that uh, the country, the democracy that was born within a few weeks, or I was born within a few weeks of that democracy being born, uh, would would now would be in jeopardy and uh, potentially uh, uh, with serious uh, possibilities of demise of that secular democracy would actually precede my own uh, end of my own life. <laughs> I would have never imagined that. Uh, but I I hope that uh, before I go, uh, we'll see the Indian democracy again speaking up louder, uh, as we did after Indira Gandhi's emergency, uh, that it'll wake up, learn some lessons from these uh, eight years of Modi rule, and ensure that we won't be exposed to similar dangers in the future. Stand there with you with that hope, and I... I... Look forward to the day not too far off when uh, Indian democracy will be restored back to uh, what it once was and even more uh, beyond that to become flourishing beacon of freedom uh, for the world. And uh, with you, sir, Mr. Rajaraju Kupal, uh, being welcomed there and, and uh, applauded for the role that you played in, in that uh, future, which we can trust will come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and follow for more to come as we look forward to dialoguing once again on DOSA.